Great. Well, as I, as I begin, please um, have your Bibles open in front of you. And I just want to ask the question, uh, what is it in life that makes you doubt God's promises? What is it in life that is likely to take you from faithful living to frustrated grumbling? I reckon uh, the most common answer to these questions around the room would probably be some form of uh, difficulty or hardship. Because uh, if we're honest, life doesn't really get any easier once we become a Christian. We still live in the same fallen, broken, sucky world. In fact, in a lot of cases, it seems that life can get even harder when we become a Christian. And when life is hard, we can start to doubt God's promises. We can start to doubt his love for us. We can start to doubt his power and control. We can find ourselves crying out to God. But not in a, in a faith-filled cry, more a frustrated cry. When life gets hard, we can begin to grumble and we can begin to doubt. Well, when we do, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, off of our weaknesses, and we need to be, and we need to be reminded about the faithfulness of the Lord who is the rescuing judge. So we've been going through the book of Exodus, chapter 3, the Lord reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, and he promises to rescue his enslaved people. In chapter 5, he sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And in chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, perhaps the theme tune of the book of Exodus, God again promises He will rescue his people. He will free them. He will redeem them with mighty acts of judgment. They will belong to him and he will be their God. And he will take them to be with him in the promised land. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 7 to 13. The Lord sends the terrible plagues upon stubborn, hard-hearted Pharaoh who sets himself against God and against his people. But we see the Lord save them through mighty acts of judgment on Egypt, his enemies. And it works. The people have been freed. Look down at chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go. It's taken 10 chapters of asking and judgment and plagues, but finally, Pharaoh has let God's people go, and they begin their long journey to the promised land. Now, I'm not sure uh, what you like to take with you on long journeys, uh, but for me, snacks are pretty essential. Good company often helps, and decent music is a must. One thing I often tend to leave off my list, or always tend to leave off my list, is a coffin filled with the bones of a dead relative. Well, not for Moses. Look down in verse 19. We're told he takes the bones of Joseph, 
his dead relative along with him because uh, Joseph has made the Israelites swear an oath. Now the oath comes at the end uh, of Genesis chapter 50 verses 24 to 25, just a few pages back. Uh, Joseph knows his time to die has come, but he also knows the Lord is faithful. He trusts God, and Hebrews 11 verses 22 tells us that this promise he makes Israel uh, promise is an act of faith, because he trusts God. He, he believes God is going to deliver his people from Egypt, and he's going to take them to the land he has promised them. So he makes Israel promise to take his bones with them when they go. So it seems a bit of an odd insert to tell us Moses took a coffin with him out of Egypt. But I think it's there to remind us of the faithfulness of the Lord. And to remind us that as God's people have been rescued from Egypt, God will also faithfully lead them to the promised land. And we certainly see God leading, don't we, in verse 20 and 22. God goes ahead of his people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide and light the way for his people. Well, we have um, two main points tonight. The first one is fear and trust the Lord, who is the rescuing judge. And that's going to be chapter 14, 1 to 31. So fear and trust the Lord who is the rescuing judge. As the Lord is leading his people, he speaks to Moses and he tells them, turn back. They're to turn back and to go just close enough for Pharaoh to spot them out his bedroom window, wandering around the land. They're presented to Pharaoh as bait, maybe like an artificial rabbit at a greyhound race, dangled in front of his nose so that he'll chase after them. He'll think they're hemmed in by the desert and he'll take off to go get them back. We're given a clue in verse 4 as to why this is the case. God's will, uh, God will, ga- will gain glory through Pharaoh or literally uh, over Pharaoh and the Egyptians will come to know that he and he alone is Lord. You see, Pharaoh and Egypt have not learned their lesson from the plagues. But they will learn. They will soon come to know that Yahweh is Lord. Well, just as God says, so it happens. Pharaoh changes his mind in verse 5. He wants his slaves back. But God's promised the people that they would be free, that, that they would belong to him. This is a matter of ownership. Pharaoh wants his slaves back. And in doing so, Pharaoh once again sets himself up against the Lord to whom the people belong. Pharaoh gets together all his military might and hard-heartedly sets off in pursuit of Israel. In verse 9, we're told in a brilliant military maneuver, he takes them over as they camp. The people are trapped, the sea behind them, and Pharaoh in front, fast approaching. The situation looks hopeless. The people 
are helpless. The people see Pharaoh and his army marching after them and they are terrified. They cry out to the Lord, but this is not a faith-filled cry, as we see in verse 11 and 12. No, in their weakness, they doubt God and his servant Moses. They say in verse 11, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Life gets a little bit too tough for them, so they abandon all trust in God. They begin to grumble. They begin to doubt him and his promises. They say in verse 12, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians as slaves than to die in the wilderness. Can you hear the doubt? The fear? Can you hear the rejection in their voice? They doubt God. They doubt his promises. They doubt his power and his love for them. And they fear Pharaoh much more than they trust God. Well, Moses assures them in verse 13 that God will fight for them. God will save them. God will rescue them from the Egyptians. Salvation is totally of the Lord. The whole way through this chapter, it couldn't be more clear. The people are weak and helpless. But it is the Lord who rescues them. He will fight for them and he will get glory over Pharaoh. And in verse 18, the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord when he does so. Well, Moses, he stretches his hand over the sea in verse 21. And, but all night long, it is the Lord who drives the sea back turning it to dry land for his people to walk through with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Of course, Pharaoh's not giving up without a fight. He charges full steam ahead, following them into the sea. The Lord, he throws the army into confusion. Verse 25, he jams the wheels of their chariots so they have difficulty driving. And the Egyptians recognize it is the Lord who fights for his people. They say, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. But for them, it's too late. Verse 26, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea goes back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, or or fleeing from it, and the Lord sweeps them into the sea. The water flows back and covers the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Total judgment, but total rescue. 
Rescue for God's people means judgment for Egypt. All the Egyptian army gone. But verse 29, the Lord's people, they go through the sea on dry ground. What a mighty, miraculous rescue. Now there are some people who try uh, and explain away this miraculous act of God. They don't like a God so powerful and so in control that he can work miracles. And so they try and explain away any miraculous thing that God does. There's a story of a liberal preacher visiting a church. As the preacher was talking about this uh, story, the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouts from the back, praise the Lord, taking the Israelites through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. The preacher who didn't believe in miracles, was annoyed at this and quite condescendingly responded, saying that it was probably just, you know, marshland with an ebbing tide. It it wasn't the the Red Sea. No, no, it was probably the the Sea of Reeds. And actually, it was probably just the Israelite uh, wading through 15 inches of water. Well, feeling pretty smug about himself, he goes to carry on. But the same voice cries out from the back, Praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in only six inches of water. (laughs) What a mighty miracle. Now, I'm not trying to claim I really know what it looked like, a, a wall of water on their right and on their left. But what we can be sure of is that day, there certainly was a mighty miracle. The Lord saving his people. Verse 30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Salvation through judgment. Because true rescue means judgment on our enemies. It's the defeat of Israel's enemies that truly frees them. Israel see all of this, and verse 30, they see the Egyptians dead on the shore. Verse 31, they see God's mighty hand and great power defeating their enemies, and so they feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in his servant Moses. The people go from fear, doubt, and grumbling in verses 10 and 12. They see the mighty rescue and power of the Lord and now they fear Pharaoh. Uh, now they don't fear Pharaoh, but they fear the Lord. That is, they treat God as Lord. And they put their trust in Him. This is the right response to rescue. This is the right response to the rescuing judge. Pharaoh, he sets himself up against God and he faces judgment. But the people, They fear God, they trust God, and they pass through the waters of judgment into true freedom. Well, the New Testament picks this up in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Paul mentions this scene explicitly, and he makes the point that actually we are in the same boat as Israel. We are in the same position as them. In fact, he likens uh, this and speaks of this as a baptism for the people. 
as they pass through the waters of judgment and death, and they pass through into life and freedom and belonging to God. And this is how Paul speaks of Christians. In Romans 6, he mentions how we, through baptism, are buried with Christ into death in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead, so we too walk in newness of life. It's clear that the New Testament thinks of us in a similar position to Israel. So the question is, what does this say to us here in Chesington in the 21st century? You see, God saved Israel by drowning their oppressor in the sea. So does this mean we should expect God to drown those who persecute us for being Christians in the Thames, perhaps? Well, no. You see, we're not slaves to a physical tyrant like Pharaoh. But the Bible does say that we are slaves. Not to a physical tyrant, but a spiritual oppressor. We are slaves to sin and to death. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, the New Testament says it is at the cross we find the fulfillment of God's conquest of our enemies. The drowning of the Egyptians points forward to the cross and the rescue that God powerfully works for us from sin and from Satan so that we might be truly free, rescued to belong to God and to live for him and with him forever. God rescues them through judgment and he rescues us through judgment. And what is the right response towards him? Well, I think Israel model it for us perfectly here. We too should see the power of God in saving us through Jesus. And we should also fear him. We should treat him as Lord. But we should also trust him and his servant, not Moses but Jesus. We are to fear and trust the Lord who is the rescuing judge. But it's more than that because that takes us to our second point. They are also to remember and rejoice in the Lord who rescues and that's point number two, remembering and rejoicing in the Lord who rescues. We've seen the people rescued by the Lord who's the rescuing judge. Their doubt turned to trust and now their grumbling is turned to song because in chapter 15, the people celebrate the Lord's victory over their enemies by singing a song. And it's a song of two halves. The first half of the song is verses 1 and 12. It looks back in the rear view mirror as the people remember who the Lord is and what he has just done. In verse 1, he has triumphed gloriously as he's thrown both horse and rider into the sea. He is the warrior Lord, verse 3, who has defeated their enemies. God is praised for his judgment because it means rescue for his people. He has become my salvation, they sing, in verse 2. He 
truly is the rescuing judge, majestic in power, and in his greatness of his majesty, he has judged those who oppose him and who set themselves against him. Verse 7. He is a God who humbles the proud. In verse 9 and 10, Pharaoh sets himself against God in arrogance and defiance, but God simply blows him away like a child would blow out a birthday candle. It truly is a foolish thing to take on the Lord. There truly is no one like him. Verse 11, there is no one like him, none who can take him on. He is the Lord who is the rescuing judge. And so his people sing. Sing his praises for who he is and for what he's done. And we too can sing. We too can look at who God is as the rescuing judge. We too can look back at an even greater rescue. We can remember the cross and rejoice for God has saved us by defeating our enemies too. There is a second half to the song because they don't just look back, but they also look forward. The shift comes in verse 13. They no longer look back at what the Lord has done, but because of who God is and because of what he's done, they can begin to look forward with confidence to what God has promised he will do. Verses 13 and 17 tell us what he has promised to do. Bring them to the land. God will take his people to be with him, to live with him. He'll bring them to the land he has promised them under his reign and rule forever. But just notice, in order to do that, he needs to get rid of their enemies that possess the land at the moment. Verses 14 and 16. But even in their weakness, they can be confident that the Lord is faithful and will keep his promise because they know who he is and what what he's already done. Well, the shift in the song, that's for us as well. We're not just to look back at the cross. We are also to look forward in confidence to what God has promised to do. We don't need to doubt. And we certainly shouldn't grumble. For God will keep his promises. He is a faithful God. No, instead, our grumbling should turn to song. We can sing to the Lord, verse 21, that he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. We can praise our God for rescuing us, for defeating our enemies at the cross. And then we can look forward in confidence to what he will do. We can trust our faithful God for the future, no matter what it looks like. And as I close, can I just encourage you, if you're struggling to sing God's praises, actually life is too hard at the moment, or at least it fills it. 
Well, one day you will sing. Just turn uh, with me to Revelation chapter 15. Towards the end of your, well, right at the end of your Bibles. Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Because this song is not just for Israel. It's a song for all God's people throughout history. And it's a song that we will sing in the future. Let me just read verses 2 and 3. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. The encouragement is that all those who persevere, no matter how tough life is now, no matter how hard it is, one day God will blow away our troubles and our enemies. And one day we too will sing this song. We too will stand by the sea and sing God's praises truly free from all our enemies. Well, let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the Lord who is the rescuing judge. Thank you that at the cross of our Saviour and Lord, we see that your powerful rescue at work for us. Help us to remember that, to look back and rejoice in what you have done for us and in who you are. And Lord, fill us with confidence for the future, for what you have promised to do. Help us to persevere. And would you turn our sorrows and our mourning, would you turn our weakness into singing your praises now and forevermore. Amen.